they called the police. And I tried to run off, like, over the roof. It was just really, like, at the time, I mean, it's a really dangerous thing to do, but you don't really feel any fear when you're in that state. It can be difficult to know what to do when a person in severe psychological distress presents to a general practice or community clinic, particularly if they're behaving aggressively or if they're refusing help. A Practice Pointer article published in the BMJ this week offers advice about an initial approach to a person who's acutely distressed in a community setting, particularly focusing on those presenting with a suspected psychotic episode. The article touches on the options to arrange support and assessment from mental health services, including involving the police using the Mental Health Act in England and Wales if necessary. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ, and today I'm joined by one of the authors of the article, Dr Aileen O'Brien, a consultant psychiatrist and reader in psychiatry and education at St George's University of London. Thanks very much for joining me, Aileen. Hi, Kate. Hello. Hi. I'm also joined by Kush, who's a person with lived experience of bipolar disorder and who contributed some of their perspectives and experiences to the article. Hi, Kush. Thanks very much for joining us. Hello. Thank you. So, Kush, in the article, you contribute a really interesting and sort of illuminating perspective, really, about your experiences of bipolar disorder. But particularly, you describe your experience of involvement with mental health services including the police at times when you've been quite unwell and it sounds like you have quite mixed feelings and and experiences um, of those times I wondered if you'd be happy to share um, some of those experiences with us okay um, well I've had police um, interception quite a number of times um, and it (sighs) I mean, most some of the times it's been quite easy, and and maybe that's because I maybe have been more compliant. But um, sometimes when they can be quite heavy-handed, and especially when you're in that state, you just kind of explode, and it makes the the assessment more difficult as well because that sort of, that sort of energy um, sort of carries on and into the assessment room. So how you dealt with it initially does. Um, kind of map out how where you're going to go. Are you going to go to the PP or are you going to go to an open ward? Um, and I've had some good police as well. Like sometimes they're really understanding and almost I feel kind of a little bit sorry for you sometimes because I had so many admissions. Um, sometimes it just felt that they found it difficult to keep doing that and take me in. But um, yeah, generally... Um, Generally, it's hard to really analyse what they've done because you just dep- their approaches can be completely different to someone else's. And you can't really say that these are good and bad because you know there's good ones and bad ones. Um, but yeah, I have had times when I've had police just trying to crush my wrist with um, with cuffs and and moving the cuffs so it cuts into my wrist and. When you're having that, you just you get you don't quiet, you don't just like you don't just become timid. If you're in that that um, psychotic mode, you're just gonna it's just gonna add fuel to the fire. You're just gonna get worse, and you start saying stuff to them, and then they they and it just it spirals, it rollercoasters mm-hmm. because then they then they sort of want to hurt you more. 
Yeah. I was going to say, sorry, in that scenario where you're already quite distressed, um, yeah. that it must be quite a shock and quite confusing sometimes to, to yeah, see the police. Yeah, but sometimes it's not really... Um, I've been quite far out and probably quite psychotic, but I wasn't really in distress. I was actually quite happy, mm. like, riding whatever I was going through. And then it's quite hard when abruptly that, the, you know, that gets stopped. And then you find yourself faced with on that hosp- going back to hospital, and it quickly goes from like a high to like the low. And then that's really when I become really distressed. Is when I've realised I've been caught again in a way, mm. and you're like, oh no, it's all going to be over, and it's just going to because every each time I had, had it, got admitted, the length of stay would become longer and longer as they decide what else to do. From what you're saying as well, it sounds like to you it's so important how that first kind of contact, that initial kind of communication, how important that is to then how things go after that. So if initially people talk to you, kind of try and keep things calm, try and explain to you what's going on, that has a huge impact on then how the rest of the assessment goes or how you feel after that when you see the next person. Yeah, I've been in one situation where this was like in 2011 and I was from hospital. I had a tribunal that one. Um, and then uh, my parents knew where I was staying and they, they called the police. And I tried to run off like over that roof. It was just really like, at the time, I mean, it's a really dangerous thing to do, but you don't really feel any fear when you're in that state. And the policeman was just so, it was just so lovely. It was so nice. I was like, come on. Don't worry, you know, just re- like they didn't one after me. It was, re- it was really good. They really dealt with it really well. Um, and then I've had others that are on the other side of the spectrum as well. So, um, so, so there's the not any different from any other, you know, profession because in every profession you've got nicer people and you've got not so nice people. So, is there anything that you feel about those? sort of thinking in general about when you're first when you're presenting kind of when you're on well and I know as you were saying sometimes in your situation it's not that you're feeling distressed but when you were presenting psychotic actually you were feeling very high but what you remember from those sort of contacts whether it was with police or healthcare professionals doctors kind of what helped in those situations what did you find kind of made that easier for you Okay, once um, once you've been detained by the police, I think the next thing is how the assessment room and the um, one three six suite, how how you um, how you're cared for in there, because that that can go the same way as well. There's one guy that I know if I'm, if he's going to be in the assessment room. I'm going to lose it with him, and that's what I do. And when I've had other people, you know, like much kinder and calmer, mm. I get put into an open ward. Are there particular things that you notice in those situations that you find do upset you or do make that more difficult? Um, well, I think some of it is... Well, some, I don't know what it is to describe, but it's almost like some personal vendetta, but... If I ask for like water or something, he'll he'll just tell me to wait until I sort of, sort of kind of blew my top. 
Um, so something about kind of to have your basic needs met. So, yeah. you know, have just and having you, a drink or asking for something to eat and people being able to, you know, there being things like that to, to offer you to kind of make you feel. Yeah, because I've had some, you know, like on the other end of the spectrum, the guy that was so nice and I was so calm. And then when I was assessed, they said, no, you don't, you know, you don't need to be detained in hospital. You go home. That's how that's what it flipped from one side to the other. I, I did. They didn't feel I needed to be. You know, they said I can deal with this in the community. Mm. And that's what they did, just because there was a different guy there. Because you know, when you say that um, you think some staff treat you diff, some staff treat you with what sounds like empathy, and others don't. Can you give us examples of how staff interact with you that make you think? Okay, this one gets it, as compared to someone who doesn't. I know egos, really. I think like <laughs> you have some staff that egos are just—it's uh, almost like they're teachers sometimes. The staff and like you have, and they just want to instill their authority. Right. So some are a bit more like authoritarian and with you yeah. than others. Yeah. Okay. It's more like they're the prison guard than we're the prisoners. Yeah. It's really far. It's not really healthcare when it goes into those sort of areas, and that seems like punishment for being unwell. So it was really useful to hear from Kush mm-hmm. about his experiences. Um, but I'm conscious a few of those um, experiences and situations were quite specific to his experience in England. Sure. So yeah. it might be useful just to pick up on some of the things he mentioned um, and explain to anyone who's not based in this setting. So mm. open wards, yeah. I'm not sure they should be called open wards anymore because they're not really open. There's a sort of worth of a general ward, um, which will have a mixture of people who are have informally, voluntarily admitted and people under section. And if someone's coming directly into a PICU, an intensive care ward, then they'll be stepped down usually to the open ward as part of their progress out of hospital to the community. And he was also talking a little bit about his experience of being in a Section 136 mm, mm. suite, also I think known of as um, a place of safety. Sure. What, what does that mean? Section 136 is an act mental health act in England and Wales where um, if the police think that someone is in a public place acting in a way where they suspect a mental disorder and they're in need of care and control, they will take them to a place of safety, which is a term in the Act. Now, most places of safety are healthcare settings. A&E, as an emergency, can be a place of safety, but usually um, the place of safety for most of us will be a Section 136 suite. And I suppose going, sort of reflecting now a little bit on what Kush has talked about, but also bringing in the article mm. which which you wrote and is now on bmj.com. So part of the reason, the motivation for writing this was around the fact that those in England and Wales, that section 136 has mm. now changed um, so that GP surgeries... Um, and community clinics uh, now count yes. as um, sort of uh, somewhere in the public setting yes. where where police can be called and yes. um, and uh, undertake section one three six. So why did you think it was sort of important to write this article for health professionals in those mm. settings? 
Well, um, myself and two of my other co-authors on the article, Julie and Stephen, were involved in writing the Royal College of Psychiatry um, guidelines, sort of frequently asked questions to update people about the changes. And we were just aware that a lot of people didn't realise that there had been these changes to the Mental Health Act, which, not not, not major uh, changes, but were just practically really useful and relevant. We thought for people working on the front line to know about, because there would there used to be lots of confusion as to what a public place meant if someone's living in a hotel or in a tent and can you be placed on 136 from your tent in Glastonbury etc 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 so these arguments still go on but it's a lot clearer um, anywhere apart from where you're living so, so although the article it, it does touch on these changes which are specific to obviously England and Wales it, it does also talk about a sort of more general principles yeah. and, and an approach to someone who is presenting sort of acutely mm. distressed mm. in you know perhaps a community setting um, and and what you do in those situations sure. and interestingly one of, you know one of the first points made um, and you know Kush touched on it as well the importance of how people approach you kind yeah. of um, the attitude towards you but some of the often some of the first people who might be seeing this you know an acutely distressed person are actually not necessarily healthcare professionals mm. so. Mm might be reception staff um tell us a little bit about sort of how how you can support sort of all your colleagues and um, to, to help support a person presenting yeah. like this i think it's really it's really hard because the tension's always there between keeping people safe and managing risk and it's important to stress that most people when they're psychotic are not dangerous to other people but it would be disingenuous to not accept that some are. So experienced staff will often, they may know the patient already, of course. It might be someone who comes in a lot. There's there's so much to be said for having built up a relationship with someone and knowing how they normally are and whether they're different. I think any healthcare setting, any practice must, should have some kind of protocols around what to do in an emergency situation and have some idea of how to do really quick risk assessment. You have to be conscious of the safety of the people around you, but you also, I think, always have to remember that the person in front of you, though they may come across as aggressive, are usually scared themselves, especially someone who's paranoid. Fear is the thing that is motivating their behavior, and the more empathic people can try to be which is difficult if it's an acute situation of course it's difficult but I do think sometimes trying to think well why is this person so angry what is it that they're being aggressive about and Mm. not always but sometimes just by trying to reassure them that you're listening to their concerns however unusual they may be you you can help I think sometimes diffuse things and I think Kosh picked up on that didn't he that you know just feeling that someone's approach is compassionate and understanding, you know, makes a big difference mm. and, and can actually affect the tra- trajectory of kind of how, you, you know, your mood then goes from there. And I'm sure that's that's often right. But I mean, it's it's really it's really really difficult to be kind of pres- too prescriptive about these things because people will have different degrees of risk, and although 
you should always have a fresh view of it every time someone presents it is also important to have some idea of background risk because it does help kind of formulate the assessment and thinking so, about that assessment so mm. in in the in that sort of community setting you've already touched on kind of what's the background what's what's the mental health history if that's available to you yep. but what other things would you be thinking about in your assessment to kind of exclude you know other causes of the sure. um, distress or, or disturbance um, I mean if we use the primary care, the GP practice primary care example I think most I think my, uh, my other colleague Judith who came on the paper with us is a very experienced GP and she sort of said you know it's that they they're used to people turning up in distress for various reasons and they usually a GP practice will usually be able to work out quite quickly whether this is um, a less severe mental disorder you know someone who's very very anxious or maybe no mental disorder someone's just very angry about something or uh, whether someone's actually acutely physically unwell or probably more uh, and presenting as agitated which would be rare I think mm. I mean we were trying to think of examples and I'm sure there are and people will probably write in with millions but maybe delirium or something yeah. like that but again I think she said in 25 years she'd never yeah. seen anyone okay. um, present agitated and that was mm-hmm. and it turned out to be a um, an organic mm. delirious and like I say this mm. is probably going to be opening the floodgates mm. of examples but um, I think most GPs would know to would be able to work mm. out that the person was physically unwell and similarly with substance misuse. substance use yes yes I think if someone's I think any if someone's intoxicated with alcohol or another substance yeah a, an experienced practice will well have seen quite a lot of that and will be able to identify it quite quickly and, and you touch on how you know ideally if you are able to and, and the risk isn't too high you'd try and involve you know local mental health services yep. or um you know a range assessment in you know uh, mm-hmm. kind of having a little bit more time to do that yeah and um, in an ideal world if this is something that happens regularly you'd have some kind of care plan in place um maybe even an advanced directive from a patient but certainly some idea you know when this person presents this is what normally works for example and what, what they've said they would like to have yeah yeah and that can be really useful i think especially if there's any questions about family or care involvement but in those situations where it, you know the practitioner does a risk assessment and is very concerned and feels there is sort of an acute risk mm. and i suppose importantly the person isn't willing to go to a, you know to a and e yeah and that's when you might involve the police. the police yeah yes yes you can't call the police and say please put this person on the section 136 because it's their assessment it's their decision they're the only person can make that decision but um if someone is you know disturbed and seems to need care and is in any public place, including a GP practice, mm. then uh, it's something the police would quite possibly consider. It can be a bit more complicated if there's been any crime committed. So there's been some criminal damage or something like that, then the police may instead decide to charge. But that's really their, yeah. their call. Because I was wondering whether there is, you know, there might be that reticence to call the police, partly for that reason, for uncertainty about, you know, whether... There might be some sort of charges brought, but also that that sense that you know, particularly if it's a first presentation, mm. the idea that you know it can be very 
scary yeah and it can be very stigmatizing actually yeah, yeah. um absolutely it's it, and it's just so difficult sometimes uh, and i think that's why and we touched on it in the in the article that if you can try and you get if you can try to um find what might feel like less stigmatizing ways to get help then clearly that would be better and even for police have been called for lots of areas now have things like street triage and other ways to try and avoid people being placed on section 136 it's interesting as well what what one of the points Kush made that actually it didn't really matter whether it was police or what healthcare professional yeah. it was it was it was their approach to mm, mm. you know and there were there've been his experience being there've been police who he's you know felt positive about and ne- you know negative about similarly with healthcare professionals so actually it's more you know people's approach to that situation that's yeah. the most important thing I, and and I yeah and I don't I don't think you can stress so enough about um just trying to put yourself in the position of a person in front of you. And just to touch on as well, um, medication in those situations, mm. kind of offering them preemptively, kind of whether in community settings people feel enabled or empowered to give PRN yeah. benzodiazepines or, or psychotropics in that in that setting, you know, before police arrive, for example, or, or before oh, arranging... That's a good question. The, I c- so, I mean, I'm used to people arriving having been given PRN that's as as required medicine in in an A&E setting and then coming to us it's very rare in this sort of situation but would they would they even have the would it have to be prescribed I don't know Um, so I suppose that's a question to our GP (laughs) listeners (laughs) Um, it it sounds like we recommend preemptive you know an early medication if it's available and if people feel confident prescribing yeah I mean I think if you've got someone in front of you that maybe you might know and you know they respond well you know they're agitated and you know them and you know what they're usually on it's a bit like you'd probably give them a painkiller wouldn't Mm. you if they were standing in pain in front of you and I guess if we're looking at an acute an emergency Mm. situation trying to then sort out the practicalities of of medication I can see might be tricky Um, but people might have their own kind of they might and we do sometimes see people come in via um, ambulances have been given medication usually benzodiazepines and you mentioned there about the importance also of sort of involving carers and relatives um I suppose what's the best way to do that and what are the issues that can arise with that oh well the big one's always confidentiality if someone's really really acutely unwell you may not even be able to have a meaningful conversation about whether they want their relatives involved but you know say someone lives with their mother and I don't think you can not they might she was going to be wondering where they are so you know you I think a lot of it has to be common sense and um, often say it's a GP practice will know about the family relationships Um, it's it's really challenging when someone who normally has a a good relationship with family then when they're unwell says they don't want their family involved and that can create all sorts of difficulties for um, mental health services although the GMC guidance about confidentiality does uh, the re- more recent updated one does suggest my understanding is that you can you should do a capacity assessment about the um, patient's 
views and really look at it in the round and look at the context and but you shouldn't just assume that their involvement is you know would be necessarily positive or wanted no exactly which is why it's so difficult mm. um because for pers- you know there may be there may be valid reasons mm. why the person doesn't want their um relative involved so it's a real yeah challenge because um, on the other hand you know they actually might be the people who will help the person feel calm in that situation yep. help de-escalate yep. the situation or if the person is as part of their illness decide to tend against their family so even if a family are gener- generally you know the carers involving them may be detrimental to the patient's mental health at that time because at that yeah. time so it's incredibly difficult mm. um it does really really help i think if when the person is well again some a professional can sit down with them and go next time you're ill would you you know do you think you're going to do you want your family involved when you're ill yeah some people don't want their family involved when they're ill just because they don't want to upset them they don't want their family seeing them you know there can be lots and lots and lots of reasons and there's no um there's no easy answer Mm. so thank you very much to aileen o'brien and kush for joining us today thank you my pleasure. You can find the article we've been discussing at bmj.com along with many other education articles. You can also listen to our back catalogue of podcasts if you'd like on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Kate Adlington, Clinical Editor at the BMJ. Thanks very much for listening.